Hello everyone. We'd like to once more welcome you to this, the 23rd episode in our multi-part series involving a thorough consideration of the 18th chapter of the Book of the Revelation. As if the information covered thus far has not been disturbing enough, how much less troubled of mind would you be if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the eyes manning the oversight of the impending doom of Babylon the Great, i.e., the United States of America, actually reside well within her borders and shores. I am Carol and, I will host this edition of the podcast The Bible Prophecy Masterclass, so, let's talk about it. Trojan Horse. The Enemy Mons Our Gates. Introduction. Premeditated, carefully orchestrated and exquisitely choreographed, perhaps, one might say that September 11, 2001, was the year of the perfect crime a high-level, high-profiled, highly visible mass murder, based upon a masterfully crafted, planned screw-up. Deliberated in utmost secrecy, carried out in broad daylight, before the eyes of an entire, watching world, and although much, much smaller in scope, it surpassed Hitler, Rwanda, and Milosevic, if for no other reason than that it was a brazen act that occurred, in the one place on earth it should never have, and under circumstances that should never have permitted it. Worse still, this crime cannot but be a precursor to a worse, more hellish day, yet to come this time not for a few thousand, as rather it will entail the blood of the better part of three hundred million souls, and, as if that's not bad enough, from here God's end-time saga only gets worse. Read more in the sidebar below. The Perfect Crime. P. 185. Thus far, we have discussed the content of, and established, if you will, the substance of Revelation chapter 18. We know now who Babylon the Great is. We know, why, she exists as such in the eyes of God, and we know equally the mechanism by means of which she could effortlessly be eliminated from the pages of history, in one hour, just as God has prescribed. The question that haunts us now is implementation, or the how. How do you, the enemy, transcend what should be the world premiere in fortification systems and manpower, to get under the skin of so colossal a foe? One cannot be too overly dogmatic, of course, but in light of God's plans for the end times. 1. The greed-driven need for war. 2. The callous, cold-blooded hearts associated with both. The collapse of the Trade Center Towers, and the thousands of murders that go with it, and with the ultimate controllers of our national defenses. 3. The Summer 2006 Declaration, War is Good for the Economy. All seem, somehow, to go together like hand-in-glove making for some real and credible possibility, in terms of how God's will could or will be done. As early as 1983, the Russians had satellite capabilities which permitted them to detect when and where launches of ICBMs took place, when such launches posed a threat to them. No doubt, the U.S. and other industrialized nations had then, and or may have now, this same capacity. Without question, this potential exists today in both camps. That being true, it is no doubt a lot more sensitive, much more sophisticated and a lot more accurate which must then in light of the previous discussion beg the question, how on earth could one ever expect to get as many ICBMs as would be needed to completely hobble a country the size of the U.S. off the ground and into that country's lap, without ever being detected? Is that rational, with so much military might and sophistication at our disposal? 
Even a monster straight out of the flames of Hades would be forced to think twice in the face of, what should be, such formidable opposition. Right, before tackling and hoping to overcome some of the most advanced security systems in the world. Unlike as appears to have been the case of Paul Revere's ride where the people and their leadership rallied in response to the cry, the Redcoats are coming. The Redcoats are coming, Pearl Harbor, Katrina and New Orleans, Louisiana with the Gulf Coast cities, the 2004 tsunami of South Asia, that spanned nearly 3,000 miles, claiming over 250,000 lives, and 9-11, in contrast to Paul Revere, all now look like sister evils in catastrophe tied together at the hips by at least one thing, a common thread of warnings, information and foreknowledge, from qualified sources, tasked with that specific responsibility that went unheeded, for one reason or the other, none good, no one budged, in the days leading up to these disasters, in spite of clear warnings. Thus, we might rightly conclude that our warning systems and mechanisms may indeed be top-notch, but, in the end, ultimately, they can only be as reliable as the people employed to manage and man them. Which then begs the question, how much can God less, top leadership be trusted to look beyond their own interests, to the well-being and the safety of all Americans, who are equally, God-less and non-God-fearing? The evidence, the disturbing evidence, one might add, reveals most graphically, that if and where they do not have our best interests at heart, those otherwise top-flight early warning systems are at best completely useless. Thus far, we have seen, hence, we know that there is every reason in the world on both religious and secular fronts. Primarily as these pertain to white America, alone why God would and does now wish to see the United States of America and its people completely destroyed. Therefore, it seems to this author that perhaps the best indicators and pointers, as to how a God-mandated and inspired initiative, might be implemented by operatives hostile to U.S. concerns, may be the events surrounding and leading into the collapse of the three World Trade Center buildings events that involve chiefly the Twin Towers and their contractors, and or the owners namely, the NY Port Authority, a government facility. The Japanese manufacturers of the beams used to form the infrastructure of the WTC. The Oval Office, most notably, the Vice President, and NORAD. Yesterday, the 8th of May 09, Seven years plus after the 11th of September 01, on a hunch, one went to the web in order to dig up information on NORAD. One did not know where it was located. Yes, yes, you say, but how can a country the size and strength of the U.S. with its ultra-modern, refined, computerized, early warning systems, be brought to its knees, for the biblical mandate of one hour, without ample opportunity to defend itself? Patience, patience. The information encountered on the web over the following three or four days was both revealing, and, quite disturbing. Hell's Angel on a Trojan Horse? Don't shoot. The flight is 50 miles out, 30 miles, 10 miles, do you still want us to uphold the, don't shoot, order? The young man dutifully reporting to Vice President Dick Cheney, asked him that question. As the plane that took off from Boston, heading west bound for LA, returned, flew east past the Pentagon, did a sharp U-turn, and, slammed into the Pentagon building from the east, unchallenged, in what should have been the most secure, most heavily defended airspace on the face of this planet. A Pretext for War
The end of the Vietnam War and the end of the Cold War saw a major shakeup of American war-related industries. That shakeup forced some to close their doors, or, to revamp meaning others could survive only through mergers or acquisitions or, by finding other uses and markets for their livelihoods. Aircraft manufacturer McDonnell Douglas is a prime example. Douglas's insistence and focus on building and selling into a war-driven economy, left it with no market for its primarily military-oriented planes, in an era of perceived peace. Rival Boeing, whose emphasis for many years had been commercial, enhanced its survival by its acquisition of Douglas. A representative from Rockwell International appeared once in a news interview, in which he discussed how his company would survive in part by making an otherwise strictly military technology available to the private sector. Out of that decision grew our current GPS tracking systems, including the satellite units commonly used today by heavy trucking companies and other industries, including law enforcement, to communicate with, dispatch and control their drivers. Rockwell provided much-needed information and technology that contributed in one way or the other to our current information age and cell phone viability. Thus, Rockwell was one of those well-known, top-tier players, you might say, who found a way to survive. These were several of the lucky ones. Long story short, lucrative sources of income inclusive of fuels, weapons, vehicles of all types and living accommodations that produced many an American wealthy, fat cat, the overwhelming majority of them white, was drying up. With military downsizing and base closings worldwide, mid-80s through the early 90s, the war industry was hemorrhaging money, while Uncle Sam, ostensibly, was saving. There had to be a remedy. The only real solution was, gulp, the war. War, however, needs a stimulus, or a pretext somebody to fight, and, a fighting reason. Somebody to blame, in order to induce the general public to bend willingly to the demand for the sacrifice and the blood of their sons and daughters upon the altars of greed. With the Korean War not officially over, but, somewhere on the backburner out of sight, tensions high, threats looming during the early 80s, the Vietnam War books closed, and the Cold War chapter ended, as of 91, or so, the war plate from which the industry feasted was empty, the military's war menu shredded. The war industry faced certain starvation. With nothing on the plate, you don't build, therefore, you have nothing to sell. No selling means no income. Thus, regardless of what the American people wanted, certain significant others, behind the scenes, heads of powerful industries needed and craved a good fight. But, how do you motivate and get a war-weary America excited about giving up her sons, mostly, and a few daughters, when there is no congressionally sanctioned justification behind which to hide the real cause? the salvation of a few fat cat pocketbooks and the preservation of what's left of once-stuffed war-fed bank accounts, and or the possible resurrection of others, apparently, rumblings and invitations from the end Koreans were not enticing enough. Considering where George Bush Jr.'s holy invocation, God bless America, and his righteous indignation took us, he blamed everything on radical Islam, and voiced a determination to make them pay, some scheming soul must have found the solution in the World Trade Towers perhaps, even, well in advance of 9-11. Roots of Disaster, 9-11, Made in Japan? By virtue of the fact that NYC and that whole eastern seaboard sit on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, 
the air is said to be saturated with salty water vapor. Not much of a problem, perhaps, in the course of normal everyday living, but it presents major challenges and headaches for engineers in the building construction industry. Metals of various types can be used in close proximity to each other in the fabrication of the substructures of steel-framed buildings, and, they often are. Problems arise, however, when those metals are placed into direct contact with each other. In that salt-laden environment, if the wrong metals are selected, or, if the right metals are applied incorrectly, an electrolytic situation will develop. In that situation, the moist, salty air will stimulate a flow of electrons from the metal having the most particles, to the one having the least similar to the way in which batteries, of the most common types, exchange electrons from negative to positive, until equilibrium is achieved. In the wake of this undesirable transfer of electrons, chemical composition is upset, causing a chemical imbalance, so that the otherwise toughest of metals begin to break down, or to corrode, i.e., they rust, in which case, they weaken. Herein lies in part the crux of the matter surrounding, or, leading into, 9-11. The Twin Towers are said to have been built using several different metals to form its critical infrastructure. However, somewhere along the line, apparently early in the construction phase, a major blunder was committed that was not detected until it was too late more or less. It seems that insulation, or, some form of a separator, that could have been, and, should have been used to separate key metal components in the infrastructure, were either not installed, or, they were improperly applied. Whatever the case, too far in to correct cost effectively, or, for whatever the reason, a command decision was made to continue the project and to finish the buildings. It appears that it was at this stage that the plan for 9-11 was hatched, having two prongs or phases, a 1993 phase and a 2001 phase. Consequently, in view of this diabolical remedy, a costly structure built with a 400-year life expectancy, would now be uninhabitable, in one-tenth the time, or around 40 years due to electrolysis between the metals, induced by the moist salty air of the Atlantic. Note, as of today, August 20, 2013, new research has revealed that the beams were actually forged and assembled by a manufacturer in Japan. Seems they had the only facilities capable of handling the requirements of fabrication. Thus, it is here that rests the source of the problem, or, the blunder or, so it seems. Once discovered, it could not be remedied on the job site. Groundbreaking having begun in about 1966, One World Trade Center and Second World Trade Center Twin Towers were officially opened for business in 1972 and 1973, respectively, which means then, that right about now, the buildings would have to be vacated and or torn down at incredible expense. Whenever the discovery of the unfortunate mishap surfaced, planners had roughly 20 to 25 years to invent an incident that would get the primary investors and contractors off the hook, and or work out the details of a horrific occurrence that would mandate and breed a the 11th of September 2001-styled event. The initial and sole investor was the NY Port Authority, a government agency, inspired by David Rockefeller to build the towers in Lower Manhattan using taxpayer dollars. Rockefeller was chairman and CEO of Chase Manhattan Bank and is the grandson of oil tycoon and founder of Standard Oil, John Davison Rockefeller.
He received his Ph.D. from the University of Chicago in 1940, after which he served an internship for 18 months as secretary to Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia. Thus, the taxpayer-funded Port Authority was and remains the sole owner, in spite of a reversal of fiscal fortunes when it leased the Trade Center buildings to Larry Silverstein and his group following the 02-1993 incident ostensibly to generate cash income, with which the Port Authority could fund other projects. Angel of Death, the Cheney Factor It seems the incidents that brought down four commercial airplanes, the World Trade Towers and that hit the Pentagon, fomenting the murders of approximately 3,000 people total, may not have been an entirely foreign initiative at all. That said, the American CIA is purported to be notorious for its involvement in creating the conditions for wars. Several things now stand out, surrounding the downing of the two towers, all this per online reports on metacafe.com, YouTube. 1. Former Prez. George W. Bush lied about his or former administrations not having foreknowledge of the possibility of such an attack. For the AP, at a function after 9-11, Homeland Security officials are said to have boasted of having foresight as, we were running drills that very morning. Bush's blunder, caught in a lie, again, YouTube video, a documentary in the making on the morning of 9-11s being filmed by a French film crew headed by the Nodet brothers, not far from the towers, in plain view of WTC-1 served as the basis and proof that GWB had foreknowledge of the event. The French endeavor was not live. There was no live coverage or filming in the area, at all. Theirs is therefore, the only known footage of the first plane, hitting the first tower. The planned release date of the documentary was distant future. Yet, George W. Bush, when queried by a young child as to the first thing that went through his head when he heard the news, said that there was a TV set on, showing live, coverage of the incident, implied, on which he had seen, this plane fly into the first building. Ya yeah, no, I thought it was pilot error. Dot. 2. NORAD North American Aerospace Defense Command founded in 1957 had conducted simulated exercises as early as two years in advance, according to USA Today, while warnings of the potential for such attacks on both the Trade Center and the Pentagon go back as far as 1995. The late Peter Jennings cited and confirmed the USA Today report in his evening news broadcast. In fact, on April 19, 2004, USA Today reported that weeks before 9-11, NORAD ran exercises that were eerily like 9-11s, that included targets like the WTC and the Pentagon. 3. No sitting president or vice president in the then 46-year history of NORAD had ever executed direct control over that branch of the military. Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld was the official top dog over the military, under the vice president. All the NORAD generals answered to him. That should have left them in charge and free to do their jobs. Instead, Rumsfeld had been officially ordered to surrender his responsibility by, and to then-Vice President Dick Cheney, effective June 1, 2001. Cheney then proceeded to relieve the NORAD generals of any prior orders they had, to act independent of his authority, in the event of a threat perceived or otherwise. From that point, with Cheney in charge, the country was basically, if only temporarily, defenseless. No official justification or reason appears to have been given to explain the need for the takeover, although. One source, however questionable, 
alleges to have had a copy of the memorandum relieving Rumsfeld and the generals of their commands. 30 hours of audio released by NORAD showed that all the ADC's training and preparation was rendered useless and completely ineffective, as utter chaos and confusion reigned on the morning of 9-11. The audio was given to journalist Michael Bronner who published his findings in Vanity Fair magazine, per a Hannity and Colmes interview. The audio showed that the airline pilots radioed the control towers. They contacted the FAA, which was clueless as to where the hijacked planes were. The hijackers had turned off the plane's transponders so that the planes could not be tracked thus NORAD had no idea as to where to send its fighters. Adding to the mayhem, NORAD early warning system tracking radar lining the periphery of the country were subject to an antiquated set of ideological assumptions which proposed and therefore assumed that any threat posed to the United States of America would always originate and, for this reason, come from the other side of its borders. Thus, all those radars, which could have been used to pinpoint the locations of all of the hijacked airliners, were positioned so as to face away from the mainland interior making them totally useless in the event of threats like that of 9-11. Note of encouragement. In the wake of that unfortunate day of infamy, a strategic reorientation of certain elements of that system is said to have been implemented. At least something good came out of this. In so many words, now that he, the horse, has demonstrated soundly and roundly that he can simply walk right out, whenever he wants, some brilliant souls have decided that perhaps now we should close the barn door. 4. Up to 8 AF bases in the area could have easily dispatched fighters to intercept the airliners that hit the towers and the Pentagon. They were all under, stand-down, orders, due to several exercises being conducted by the CIA, in that same area, during those same hours per the Associated Press, 08, 2002. Those exercises were simulations of the exact incident that took place, on 9-11. In so many words, the CIA's mock attacks appear to have been a cover for the real thing, so that when the moment of truth arrived, no one would respond. Apparently, potentially incriminating evidence that could have come to light surrounding the incident was destroyed when senior FAA officials ordered the destruction of air traffic controller taped recordings. That act was in direct violation of federal law. Evidently, no heads have rolled. One guesses none will roll. Most of the area fighters were deployed TDY to Canada for some sort of joint exercise being conducted there while the ones remaining were sent on maneuvers out over the Atlantic as part of a mock exercise that kept them away from the point of the impacts and confused as to what was really happening. Any plane scrambled, remained under Cheney's stand-down restriction, until it was too late, which he steadfastly refused to rescind, with respect to the plane that hit the Pentagon. Its direction, location and speed were known well in advance, per regular updates directly to Dick Cheney according to a first-hand account from Norman Mineta. He was transportation secretary. He testified before Lee Hamilton, vice chairman of the National Commission on the September 11 attacks. Planes were eventually airborne from Langley and Otis AFBs, per Mr. Mineta. A shoot-down order had been authorized by the president, but never implemented. This account based upon actual video footage of the hearing linked to YouTube from Metacafe.com. 5. Explosions. Explosions. Everyone interviewed survivors, bystanders in the area both during and after the initial moments of each crash, first responders, firefighters and policemen, 
reported hearing secondary explosions, sometimes a series in rapid succession, every 20 minutes for up to an hour after the first plane struck the towers. These explosive noises are said to have been heard all the way down, at ground level, many floors below the burning airplanes. Some say that the evidence, upon close examination of girders near the ground, show disturbing signs, cutting patterns and molten metal, typical of the use of high-explosive charges designed and configured so as to quickly generate super-high temperatures, thereby literally softening and melting, then cutting through massive super-hardened steel beams like a hot knife through soft butter, in order to bring down super-heavy, steel structures of that nature. The engineers who built those towers constructed them so as to withstand the impact of a Boeing 707. See the sidebar below, the tower's infrastructure, page 186. That airliner is bigger and heavier than either of the two planes that slammed into the two Trade Center structures. One at this point can only surmise that by this the architects mean the combined effects of the initial impact, any ensuing, consequential explosions, and the extreme temperatures from heat generated by the burning of the aircraft's JP-4 jet fuel, all combined, would not have been enough to bring down their handiwork. This means then, that box-frame steel girders having sides up to 5 inches thick, 54, WX-22, DX-5 inches T, below the lowest floors, close to the ground, did not give way due to a loss of strength, owing to the steel's loss of its temper, as has been alleged. If the girders, which tapered to a thickness of only about 2 inches for the topmost floors, lasted for almost one hour, those near the bottom should have lasted not less than two to three times longer, being twice as thick and subjected to no direct flames or heat. Video footage from various angles shows that the collapse of all three WTC buildings was classic, textbook, controlled, demolition work, exquisitely timed, expertly executed, so that all fell, completely demolished within 10 to 12 seconds from a distance of almost one quarter of a mile above the ground, for the two tallest towers. It would take a brick about that amount of time to fall to the ground from the top of either of the twin towers. Each fell toward the center, within the confines of its own footprint, as it should have. The manner in which the towers fell, each in exactly the same way, is also said to be very, very suspicious. Each of the almost 300 vertical support beams effectively crumbled into short sections, while concrete was pulverized into dust. Sections of steel beams that came out, striking and severely damaging other facilities in the area, is more consistent with objects being blown out by an explosion, than with a simple collapse. It should be noted that, all fires burned more to one side of the buildings than they did to the others, meaning that jet fuel which could not burn hot enough to melt steel anyway was by no means evenly distributed. Thus, much steel, even in the towers, was essentially, comparatively cold so that any fall should have been in the direction toward the side where the flames were hottest. The portions above the flames should have fallen first long before much cooler steel below and well away from the intense heat, where people were seen standing and from which some jumped to their deaths. Each fell like a well-orchestrated demolition job, which would have required months of planning and setting up to facilitate. The suggestion here is that, after the first WTC attack on February 26, 1993, some years earlier, planners must have gone right to work setting up for 9-11. In fact, that failed attempt to blow one tower over in hopes it would fall onto two tower, 
killing tens of thousands of the nearly 50,000 workers and roughly 200,000 visitors, may well have been a psychological smokescreen to draw attention away from the prospect of a then impending the 11th of September 2001. That is entirely plausible, given that with only collateral damage and a few relatively small fires, there is positively no way that, or, one good reason why the entire substructure of WTC-7 should have given way at all, much less fallen in exactly the same manner as the Twin Towers, at exactly the same rate, all around the building, when probably 95% or better of its steel could not have been more cold if it had been sitting in Antarctica for six months. Online video shows Larry Silverstein confessing to giving the order to pull, industry jargon meaning that the building was to be demolished by explosives meaning, furthermore, that it was well known and understood that the explosives were already in place and ready for use. Hence, no one expected or had reason to expect that the building would ever fall on its own. Due to heat. Who would have ever been the wiser? Who would have ever guessed that for defense, day in and day out, week after week, month by month, we awake to the hoofbeat and the danger of known Trojan horses within our camp, nurtured and ridden by enemies who front in the ranks of leadership, our leadership, drawing paychecks and pensions at taxpayer expense, while simultaneously, they hatch diabolical schemes, set them in place and lay plans for the eventual demise of the U.S. of A., before our very eyes. If they could pull this off, they'd kill two birds, with one stone. Oh destroy and cover the evidence of a major embarrassing and costly blunder, liberating the port authority, and, building contractors from liability and scrutiny oh develop a pretext for war by blaming Muslim terrorists, who because of their own foolishness and blindness, not only made finding a scapegoat easy, but, were doubtless duped unwittingly into roles they were more than eager to play anyway. 6. Supposedly, the security company Securicom, was headed by family cousin and CEO Wirt D. Walker from 1999-2000. Younger brother, to the latter of the Bush presidents, Marvin P. Bush being one of the company's directors, worked from 1996 to 2000, Wikipedia says, 1993 to 2000, installing what was supposed to have been a new security system at the WTC per Metacafe.com video. Very interesting. The suggestion here is quite clear, is it not? For a period of four years, the Bushes were involved in a company that oversaw the installation of a new system that could easily have been the pretext for the laying of the explosives that brought the buildings down. So what, you say? Why is that significant? Dot. Interestingly, www.youtube.com slash watch question mark V equals 8 Yasarku indicates that, while fires from the two airline crashes burned at several thousand degrees roughly one quarter mile above the ground, temperatures raged equally as high underground, 0.25 miles below those airline fires. The fires were so hot, or, the heat was so intense, insofar as, the initial cause may not have been fire, that after the underground area was reached, when all the other debris from the collapses had been removed, including the airplane wreckages, etc., the steel-toed boots of workers would melt, within a few hours, due to the intense heat believed to have been caused by the implementation of something called, thermite or super thermite. Just watched a video of this stuff in action on YouTube the 11th of September 2021. It's a mixture of pulverized iron rust powder and aluminum oxide that, when ignited burns through virtually anything, including steel, at around 4000 degrees Fahrenheit. 
Six inches thick steel beams were found perfectly bent, like a pretzel, which would have required tremendous force, and, heat. Eyewitnesses spoke of molten steel running down the columns, at the bases, and, smoldering materials bursting into hot flames when uncovered and exposed to the air. Temperatures were so hot that both concrete and steel were melted and fused together into massive balls. This, they say, was true up to six weeks after 9-11. Worse still, temperatures got hotter and hotter, the deeper they dug, the more debris they removed. They spoke of, underground fires, were like the fires of hell. It looked like, ah, an oven, you know, it was just, ah, roaring inside, you know just ah, bright, bright orange color. One ranking firefighter said, describing the molten materials he saw firsthand, as he gave instructions to another subordinate not to hit it with water because of the danger of blinding steam. At one point, temperatures were measured as high as 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit. According to Ken Holden, NY Department of Design and Construction Director, underground, it was still so hot that molten metal dripped down the sides of a wall. From Building 6, Building 6 was not hit by any airplane. So, whoever set this up was out to destroy everything. WTC, and, they didn't care how many people they injured or killed in the process. Former Mayor Giuliani acknowledged having been informed of fires of 2,000 degrees below the ground. According to www.youtube.com slash watch question mark V equals 29 BRCC 2XC comma it was Giuliani who authorized shipping debris off to overseas destinations before it could be thoroughly investigated and tested. Essentially, they blocked off the crime scene and destroyed all the evidence. The video also cites Fire Engineering magazine as stating that no steel building has ever been destroyed by fire. The World Trade Center investigation was a half-baked farce. Another official enthused over a worker who found a cross is fully extended, melted together with the intense heat. Perfectly formed from two beams that were initially never part of the same structure. The piece of metal that was draped over was molten metal that had literally fallen over one of the arms. Question is, why? Something caused all of that heat and molten metal, and, everyone appears to agree, it was not burning JP4, which will not generate enough heat to melt that kind of metal. No doubt the temperatures it produced helped to weaken the structure of the buildings, but, who put that something there and when? It appears to have been found at all the buildings. Why? Reads like a classic case of, who done it, don't it? Thus ends the next-to-last episode of the Bible Prophecy Masterclass, rooted in the book Judgment Day, Volume 1. Prelude to Armageddon, Part 1, The United States of America in Bible Prophecy, by Alvin Mitchell. Please plan to be with us for the finale of this study when we will cover the fifth column in the ranks of and in charge of, our country's security. Until next time, take care and God bless you.